a church member, Mary, asked you to pray for her friend, Bob. Well, she's not really her friend. He's a co-worker. And it's not really him you're praying for, but it's his brother, Joe, who had a stroke. So you and Mary live in Huntsville. Bob lives in Atlanta, and Mary works in the same company, and she only sees Bob through teleconferencing. And Joe, well, Joe lives in, I don't know, South Dakota. I mean, nobody in these examples ever lives in South Dakota, so let's, let's give them some love. Joe is now, like, close to death. He's unable to speak. He's lost the use of one of his arms. But Bob, his brother, is diligent. He asks everybody he knows to pray for Joe. And Mary, Mary does a good job of that, too, the world being what it is today. They've got co-workers all over the United States and Canada. I mean, there's people that Joe doesn't know and will never meet praying for Joe in places He's never heard of churches, denominations, and traditions that he doesn't know or understand. Now, lo and behold, Joe gets better. Eventually, Mary tells you at church that, uh, to all her United Methodist Church in Huntsville, that Joe is at home. And Bob communicates through Mary to your group that prayer works. How does prayer work? How do the prayer petitions of of numerous people affect any change? I mean, did God need to reach a certain level of, uh, quote, signatures on a petition before he helped Joe? My name is Earl Freeman, and I am the co-senior pastor at Aldersgate United Methodist in Huntsville. Welcome to the podcast. So I'm going to tell you about a book called Divine Echoes by Mark Gregory Karras. He's a pastor and a licensed marriage and family therapist living in San Diego, California. But before I tell you, I want to warn you. If you've got all the answers you need about your faith, if you're safe and comfortable in what you believe and what you know about prayer, do not read this book. Don't pick it up. In fact, you may want to just go ahead and click the stop button. Well, now, if you're still listening, let's talk about this book. Karis asks some very, very challenging questions about petitionary prayer. Petitionary prayer is the kind of prayer we all engage in all the time. It's the, dear Lord, please help Aunt Sally prayer. It's the kind of prayer that makes us put those page-long prayer request lists in the church bulletin or on the church website. In the introduction to his book, Karis is a little bit like Job in the Old Testament. He tells a story in which he is in the middle of some intense suffering. His mother is addicted to drugs. His brother is in the throes of paranoid schizophrenia, on and off medication, and ends up in jail. All the while, Mark Karras prays fervently for both his mother and his brother. His church prayed and fasted for both his mother and his brother. The mother succumbed to an overdose. 
The brother, while in jail and off his medication, killed an inmate. All of the time, through all of this, he says, he was met with the same, quote, tiresome, steadfast Christian answers. Now, those are, those are his words, not mine. He was surrounded by people who told him the same things that we have probably told people in our own lives. Oh, God has a plan. Oh, your brother, your brother's going to be healed. It's just right around the corner. If you pray hard enough, if you fast hard enough. Now, if those answers are enough for you, look elsewhere for your prayer education. But now, if you're like Mark Karras and those unanswered prayers force you to deconstruct and reimagine petitionary prayer, then you might want to read his book. He asked, does petitionary prayer offered on behalf of another without the knowledge of that other person affect any real change? Or do such prayers merely provide comfort for the one who is praying? And I told you this book was challenging. He says, praying for someone in person or on the phone or on a Zoom teleconference allows that person a choice to open up to God and to submit to God's working in his or her life. And the same goes for when you pray for yourself. The one-on-one interaction, the verbal, the auditory prayers allow the other a chance to submit and to change. But what about those who are being prayed for, like Joe in South Dakota, who may or may not know you are praying for them, who may or may not be open to an experience of God. They may have other variables in their lives that prohibit their healing or that make their healing harder. How can we pray for them more effectively? Let's talk about what those prayers say about God. I mean, does God wait until he hears a certain amount of prayers before helping someone? Does he really say, oh, shoot, I'm sorry, Joe. You didn't get enough prayers. I'm going to go help uh, Steve over here first. Or does God say, Joe, I'd like to help you, but man, your friends don't know how to pray at all. Do we really think God doesn't know about Joe's condition until we tell him? Do we really think God only cares about the people that meet some unknown criteria? Not only does Karis consider how prayer works, he, he considers what those prayers say about God. He considers what we teach and believe about prayer and what it communicates about how God works in the world. Is this really what we intend to communicate about God? Is the way we pray consistent with what we know of God? Is it consistent with what Scripture says about God? He suggests a different way of praying. He calls it conspiring prayer. It takes prayer from a monologue to a dialogue. He says prayer should move from simply praying to God to praying with God in order that shalom is brought forth in the world. And here is the quote, okay? We are called, he says, to be divine echoes. Ta-da! There's the title. 
We are called to be divine echoes. People who intentionally set aside time to prayerfully listen, humbly opening themselves up to receive God's wavelengths of love, and creatively reverberate them out into the world around them. Now, let me give you an example, one that happened right here in Alabama and not in South Dakota. As a pastor, I have been privileged over the years, quote, privileged, to work with some challenging church members, challenging pastors, and challenging district superintendents. And in my worst moments, my prayers go something like, dear Lord, please get so-and-so off my back. Or, Lord, take away their spirit of judgment and give them a spirit of affirmation. Please. Or maybe even I've gotten to the point where I said, Lord, please open the way for so-and-so to find a new church. Now, in my better, more, quote, divine echo kind of moments, I might simply have brought that person into mind during prayer. Maybe considering a passage of Scripture Or maybe I listened to some scripture in my mind. Maybe I read some scripture, and that scripture reminded me of a certain person. And maybe as that person came into my mind, I imagined what our relationship could be like, what God might want the relationship to be. Now, there's one powerful example I tell people all the time. I was working with a senior pastor who shall remain unnamed, and I was mad at him. He had, and boy, it was justified too. I, I was, I was mad. He had done something, and I was so angry with him. I would say things to myself like, "I cannot serve communion with that man. He is such a liar." Well, one night, it was like in a dream, that I saw what he was going through. I saw things happening in his life, or was reminded by God as I considered my relationship with this man. And I walked into church the next morning, man, ready to be mad. I was fired up. And when I saw him, all that anger just went away. I felt compassion. I remembered what I had seen in my dream, prayer, whatever you want to call it. Man, I was disappointed that I wasn't mad anymore. I didn't know how to relate to him. Let me tell you before we finish some of Karis's principles of conspiring prayer. Remember that conspire means to breathe together. We use the word in a bad way these days. I mean, we talk about conspiracy theories. Conspiracy is a crime. Aside from all those negative connotations, it, it can mean simply to, to act in harmony toward a common end. Conspiring prayer is performed with God. Instead of to God, Kara says, we align our hearts with God's heart and our spirit and God's spirit breathe harmoniously together. Conspiring prayer shares petitions with God in a collaborative dialogue. Collaborative dialogue. Elsewhere, recently I read uh, from a book by Dallas Willard that the relationship with God ought to be the relationship of two mature partners. That sort of reminds me of the Lord's Prayer in which we pray, 
Lord on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the message translation of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 14. Man, I like it. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're a blaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. And Jesus goes on to say, in prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. That sounds a lot like collaborative, conspiring prayer to me. Isn't that what we all want, though, to be in collaboration with God, aligning ourselves with, in our world, with God's loving character? I want to close with a prayer adapted from a paragraph in, in Karis's book. Lord, we pray, we pray all about violence and injustice. Stop the violence, God. Let your justice flow, we say. And in our heart, would we, can we, imagine God responding something like this. Kids, I do too. I grieve with you. My heart's broken just like yours is. I despise violence and injustice too. I want healing. I want my people to be set free. Now, there's a lot I'm already doing to change that. There are people all over the world working together to bring forth my vision for the earth. Let's imagine how we can creatively work together so you can join the effort. Thanks for listening.